HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. In some of my songs, I have casually mentioned the fact that I like to drink beer. This little song is more to the point. Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's May 15th, 2012. It's American Craft Beer Week, and we're celebrating taverns in America tonight on Beer Sessions Radio. We've got some great guests. I have Christine Sismondo, the author of America Walks Into a Bar. Ken Tirado, the owner of the historic Kilmeyer's Tavern, and Barry Smith from Francis Tavern in Manhattan. We're sponsored by GreatBrewers.com. Thank you so much. Check out the Beer Cloud anytime you want to learn more about your favorite beers, store tasting notes, and get beer and food pairing ideas. Check out GreatBrewers.com. We're also supported by the people at the Good Beer Seal, an association of 34 New York City beer bars that serve, promote, and support good beer. And on the theme of the Tavern Show, the, the Good Beer Seal exists to identify... Um, you know some of the noted, uh, really top craft beer bars in New York City. There's uh, one in almost ev- any borough, and there there may be one in Staten Island soon. Um, so it's kind of a good good introduction to the the tavern show. Uh, Christine Sismondo, we're so happy to have you on the show. I've been reading your book for the last three months. It's very <laughs> dense and footnoted, but it takes us from the colonial era up to. Uh, you know, the 60s and the 70s. What made you uh, write a book about taverns? Um, I started to notice every time I traveled, I'm actually Canadian, and so every time I came to the United States, I noticed that so many important events historically had happened in bars, and I wanted to know why. What what, what was the reason that um, everything from the American Revolution to Stonewall, that this all took place, they germinated in bars, so many of these events. So that got me interested in the space. Well, um, some of the themes you, you touched on, you, you talked about um, the reasons why Prohibition came about. Uh, I'd heard several things in, in my life. One, that people were anti-immigrant. They didn't like the Irish and, and the Germans. They were, you know, they're concerned about mixing classes and mixing races. Um, do you think back in the 1800s, would you, have, would you have been a dry or a wet? 
<laughs> I can't imagine life is a dry, so I guess I have to answer it that way. I mean, um, there's no question that the women who were involved in temperance leagues had some legitimate concerns about the amount of drinking that was going on in America at the time. People were drinking over seven gallons of absolute alcohol per year in the 1830s and 1840s because there was such a glut of corn. Um, at in addition, though, I think there were a lot of illegitimate concerns. People wanted sober workforce. People were anti-immigrant. So all of these are factors that go into prohibition. Ken, have you thought a lot about uh, what happened before prohibition in New York? Well, it's interesting because I grew up in the part of Staten Island known as Westerly that was called Prohibition Park in the uh, turn of the 20th century. In fact, all of the streets around the block where I grew up on were named after dry states. So there's Ohio Place, Maryland Avenue, you know, and, and that was the community. Clinton B. Fisk, who I believe was a vice presidential candidate, was a real prohibitionist, and that was my, my grade school was on Clinton B. Fisk Avenue. And I didn't understand all of that until years later when I got into the business and I did a little research. The irony is that all those 19th century German immigrants came to Staten Island and discovered the spring water and built these world-class breweries on Staten Island. So there must have been a real conflict between the wet and the dry right in my own community. You own Kilmeyer's in Staten Island? Yes. And how long have you owned that? Well, I've been there for 16 years or so. But Kilmeyer's itself has been Kilmeyer's since 1859. It's the oldest bar on Staten Island and, and probably one of the oldest in all of New York City. And what happened to Kilmeyer's during the Prohibition? Well, um, the Kilmeyer family uh, had pretty much died off by, um, by the turn of the 20s. In fact, the whole German factory town was known as Kreischerville, but due to the anti-German sentiment of World War I, they changed the name back to Charleston. And uh, it killed most of the breweries. Uh, my, uh, my business was known as Kilmeyer's Union Hotel, so it was still probably able to function as a boarding house and all of that. It wasn't forced out of business. But I know that in 1934, when Prohibition was repealed, they suddenly, in a burst of enthusiasm, installed indoor plumbing <laughs> and uh, did some modifications to um, compete with the, uh, with the new business. Christine, in your research on the book, I mean, how many years did you spend researching and writing this this great book? Feels like I've been preparing for it my whole life, going to all these bars. Um, <laughs> but uh, really, four or five years of looking into the politics, the relationship between politics and bars. And were there any favorites that you visited in your research, or favorite old bars that stand out? I really like the Francis. I'm sorry I haven't been to Staten Island, but the Francis is a great old <laughs> tavern. You. And we got Barry Smith. Barry, how yeah, are you? Yeah, Francis Darwin is great. It's just uh, so historic. Um, it's just got so much going for it, you know. It's great to be part of it, you know. Um, so you guys have a cool story. Francis Tavern, was, it's one of the oldest taverns in America. Yeah, well, um, it was originally built as a, as a home, um, and then uh, it was bought by Samuel Fran- uh, Francis um, 250 years ago, this year, actually, um, and made into a tavern, and uh, they're doing a roaring trade ever since, you know. Uh, it's great. No, it's 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 such a great part of history, and, and so much has happened there. And even just from a tavern point of view, like it's been a, an epicenter for what's gone on in Manhattan. You know, different departments, you, uh, you federal departments have been stationed there, and everything. It's just it's seen it all. You know, it's great. All right, and then, Christine, tell us what you want to tell us. Um, well, I also I'm, I like bars of all sort of levels. I like 
uh, dive bars. I like you know the historical bars. I like good cocktail bars. But if you, I think that if you look at the, what's happening to dive bars and neighborhood t- taverns and saloons, I think we have to see it as kind of an endangered space with gentrification. And I think we need our locals. I think we need a place where we can unwind. And it's sort of a very humane way of using the city that you have these little places where you have these communities that form. And so to me, the whole point of dredging up the history and talking about all the wonderful things that the bar's done in the past is about preserving it today and making sure that we don't write it off as an unimportant place, but that we pay it its respect for an important social space. So back in the colonial era, what were some important events that happened in pubs and taverns? Well, I think the American Revolution was orchestrated through a network of taverns, and I call it almost a proto-internet, in that these were where people read Thomas Paine aloud to each other. They worked up the crowds with um, propaganda, you know, getting people riled up over the British. It's also, of course, where weapons were stored, where smuggling happened, where um, political uh, campaigns were planned. So I, I don't see the American Revolution happening in that way without the network of taverns. What's interesting is uh, right down the street from um, from Kilmeyer's is a historic building called the Conference House where uh, Benjamin Franklin, Edward Rutledge, and John Adams had an unsuccessful uh, attempt to prevent the Revolutionary War with uh, the British Admiral Howe. And it happened, um, ironically, on September 11th, 1776. And uh, every year, uh, a bunch of people from the Historical Society, including myself, we get together and recreate this little peace conference. Do you dress up? And, uh, oh, awesome? yeah. <laughs> High production values. And what do you do? you row boats? What do you do? Yeah, we do. Yeah. We row from the... Uh, from um, Perth Amboy, where um, mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin's son uh, was the uh, the governor of New Jersey, and there was a trading house there, and we get in a rowboat and we row over and we recreate the. Someone wrote a little play with putting together what they, I guess, estimate the dialogue was like, and it's uh, it's, it's an event every year. Well, that's cool. How I mean, how does beer play into this? Was beer the drink of choice in, in tavern, the old taverns, or were there other drinks? I think that's key to the development of the tavern. And, um, you know, another great and important event that nobody realizes happened mostly in bars was the Salem Witch Trials. So, um, but we re- don't realize how many trials happened in bars, in the, or they wouldn't have been called bars at the time, but in the early t- taverns and ordinaries um, in colonial America, because it was the warmest place in town and the best place to find a beer. So, between those two things, which are actually, you know, needs. These aren't these aren't luxurious sort of um, bourgeois wants. These are, are needs because everybody thought that beer was the safest way to rehydrate at the time. And so it was food, it was medicine, it was water, it was life. And and that's where you went to get it. So that's why the tavern's the center of the town. And what what back in the early colonial days, I mean, how how were breweries created? Were they licensed? Were people able to do them independently? Um, there isn't that much I haven't found that much research that's documented what's happened so I'm suspecting that so much of it really did happen organically and it was um, in the early days there's there's a, a lot less documentation about it so I think there's pre-licensing period. Well, one thing that's interesting, there's a lot of terms that came up in your book um, again it's Christine says Mondo, America walks into a bar um, blind pig and blind tiger, what were those? Um, well, and there's a blind tiger here in New York, right? Uh, and uh, th- there was this idea for a period of time that 
in some places that had main laws and that sort of some form of prohibition, that there were some sort of enterprising barkeepers who would do things like paint a, a pig with stripes. So you'd have a striped pig or a blind pig or that kind of thing. And the idea was that you came in to see the pig and you paid five cents admission, but you got a glass of beer to go with it or you got a glass of whiskey to go with it. So this is just a, an early speakeasy. Wow, that's very creative. <laughs> and then he also talked about um, things like uh, post-repeal of prohibition. There were blue laws where they had to serve stale cheese sandwiches. That, I love that. Yeah, there, there's always... Um, we still have blue laws in some places about Sunday, Sunday liquor laws. In Connecticut, I believe, they just repealed the um, Sunday liquor laws recently. And um, so I know in Canada, we always had jokes that anyone who ordered the sandwich in uh, had to be an American. And then in, in, on a Sunday, because it was a stale sandwich that had been passed around forever, because you couldn't legally order alcohol on a Sunday without a meal. So there, you know, people would just pass a sandwich around. And it's a really old practice. Did um, you have to pay for the sandwich, too? <laughs> no, I think that it comes for free. <laughs> I wonder if that's where the uh, the crackers and the mustard at mm. McSorley's, uh, you know, came from. I my oldest McSorley's memory was walking in there and they had the that bowl full of saltines and they had that fiery, fiery hot mustard that I understand was made from powdered mustard and uh, the onions. And I guess you know, uh, I guess they had to serve something and they had to hard boil the eggs also behind the bar. Raw onions, uh, good ale, and no women, right? Yeah. That's the McSorley's. <laughs> well, there's some, you, you have some good McSorley's stories, Ken. I mean, is McSorley's the oldest tavern in New York? I think it's generally. I think it is, yeah. yeah. As in it's running. You know, we had spaces where we were closed, and, you know, obviously the structure had to be rebuilt, and all kinds of different things went on, you know. But I think McSorley's does have it as yeah. the, the longest running. I think my favorite McSorley story, and, and I don't really know whether these are true, which is urban legend or not, but I remember hearing 30, 35 years ago when I was uh, my first bartending jobs, is that the bartenders at McSorley's actually had to buy the kegs from the owner, and um, and they weighed them. And so, you know, they they paid the owner and then they made whatever they made from the keg and if they wanted to give away free drinks it just came out of their profit or wow yeah i hear they still get a portion of you know from yeah. the kegs they're, they're given a portion of the profits from if they sell a lot of kegs kind of thing you know so hmm. it's a nice system oh, yes well, let's make a toast christine you brought in this lovely uh, spruce beer what is this lovely it's cheers a- um, it's uh, Spruce beer would have been one of the early American beers, and we also make it in Canada. This one is uh, Garrison Brewing, so it's uh, from Nova Scotia, Halifax. And um, a guy named Brian Titus up there, he sort of resurrected this old recipe of spruce beer. And um, it sells out in two days. People line up when it only comes out once a year. This is a few months old. You're supposed to age it for a little while. It's supposed to, to really be better after it's been aged. What's in the beer again? Tell me. <laughs> it, it really is spruce needles. Yeah, from thinking, you can kind of taste it. You can, you can taste the spruce. Up. You can yeah. taste it. So you think it's, it's spruce instead of hops? Is that what it is? I think so, yeah. It's, it's vaguely reminiscent of one of the German Rauch beers, smoke beers. It has that, that sort of rich complexity to it. I mean, I've, I've had some bad, you know... Uh, pine needle beers made by home brewers, but this is pretty good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they figured out how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Well, this is cool. I'll tell you what. We're out. we're having a, it's just a warm up for our show. We're gonna we're gonna take a short break. 
We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender, good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every guy I see. Wouldn't you like to have fun, fun, fun? How's about a few laughs, laughs? I can show you a good time. Let me show you a good time. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to GreatBrewers.com for sponsoring us and to the Good Beer Seal, our, our buddies in, in many ways. So here we are with uh, an awesome lineup of, of tavern experts. we got Christine Sismondo, Ken from Kilmyers, and Barry from Francis Tavern. Ken, what beers have we been drinking tonight? Well, um, I first opened up the uh, Dogfish Head 75-Minute IPA. It's a big, big bottle of very, very fine beer that, frankly, I have a real hard time getting. For some reason, Staten Island is low on the food chain with the beer distributors. You, know, you keep saying that, but you keep bringing in all these great beers. And what's next? You have what? Alesmith IPA? Alesmith IPA. And I have to admit a little bit of ignorance here. Um, I didn't know much about Alesmith until I started hearing uh, recently about it. And I did some research. It's from uh, you know San Diego. It's a little, one of the little craft brewers that has been winning a lot of awards. So once again, I, I, I ordered it and I was told, oh, we're out of stock, out of stock. But finally, I was able to score a case of their IPA which has uh, won a few, quite a few awards, medals, Great American Beer Festival, and you know some others, and it's it's very very fine. But to me, some people disagree. I find it reminiscent of uh, Six Points. Um, oh, what's the name of that beer? Uh, Sweet Action. Oh. It's got that almost citrusy, grapefruity type finish that uh, Six Points Sweet Action has. But it's a very fine beer. Well, you know, I know you know a lot about beer. We visited you last month. You're way at the southern tip of Staten Island. If you're not from yes, New York, sir. you're basically almost in the Atlantic, right? True. You're uh, like as far as you can get from New York as you can. We are the southernmost tip of New York State. Uh, that used to work um, to my advantage when uh, the drinking age was 18 in New York State. So I'd get all of the people from New Jersey would come over to take advantage of that. But uh, now it's just, you know, a cross I have to bear that I'm so far off the beaten track. Now, I know you you're, you have a lot of really great German beers, but you've also been bringing in some American craft beers yes, as sir. well. Yeah. Um, in fact, we just opened up our beer garden a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we expanded the uh, summer beer list to include such things as uh, Narragansett, uh, Summer Ale, Six Point Apollo, Victory, Summer of Love. There are some really, really great summer beers lately. It seems like that style of beer has like really taken off. 
So I've, uh, I've, I've been looking for the, the cream of the crop. Even the, some of the fun uh, fruit-flavored beers, like the uh, Kugel's Berry Weiss beer. You know, uh, Fruly strawberry beer from Belgium mm. uh, yes. is a real summer favorite. Do, do you pick all the beers? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I, I, not totally by myself. I get a lot, of, a lot of advice on it, but yes. I'm talking about old school taverns. You have a, a, a most interesting draft system, I, and, I, and I was there with you. Explained it to me. Could you tell me a little more about it? it? It's it's just you know a lot of people now have these glycol systems where there's some sort of like an antifreeze refrigerant or something like that that wraps around, and uh, we do it the old fashioned way, which is we basically have uh, stainless steel coils that are just packed in ice. So every morning the bartender opens up the top of the lid and just shovels ice in there. And as the beer, you know, just travels through the stainless steel coils, it's it's chilled by the ice. So are the kegs right below the bar? Yes, they are. They, uh, yes, they are. The walk-in box is directly below the bar. And then do you, do you have gas to force it up? Well, yeah, we use beer gas. We use nitrogen. Yeah, it's cleaner. It's much better than, um, you know, we used, in the old days they would have uh, just compressors. And so all the stale cellar air would get pushed into the beer lines. And we're, we're kind of smarter now with this uh, nitrogen. It's amazing when you talk about draft beer. The the, the way the beer gets you, the, the system really determines you know quality yeah. of the beer. It also keeps the beer fresher. Nitrogen does not oxidize the beer as quickly as just you know regular air does. Christine, in, in your research, did you have you come across any studies or information about old draft beer systems and? How it worked in bars. That's a little specialized for me because I tend to do more stuff about hard liquor, um, which is my sort of sideline interest is cocktails. But the amount of ice, I just read recently that uh, in the 1880s and 1890s, the New York and Brooklyn area used a million tons of ice per year. Um, so it's a really stunning development that would have happened with connection in connection with all of the types of drinks that this is the first place in the world where people were bringing in ice. Of course, harvested from Massachusetts, New York State, that area. And um, the real innovations in, in bar culture here in this particular area, which facilitated urban living. Do you think that New York was, was the best bar town in the late 1800s? Absolutely. In the whole world? <laughs> sure. It's still not a bad spot to pick, you know, if you're, <laughs> how many cities are going to hold a candle to it. And so, so you're into cocktails. What, what are things, innovations that you're seeing now in, in the cocktail world that you like? You heard for the Manhattan Cocktail Classic. That's right. Well, what, the, the ice is key to everything. The American bar itself um, is really distinguished by ice, by its use of ice. So it's the, um, it's harvesting the ice, but then learning how to use it in, to make drinks properly. And what you see happening now is people are going back to looking at the methods that people used in the 1880s and 1890s and reviving them to make cocktails today. And so they're saying, well, you know, what they had, what they, their innovations were really pretty spectacular, and maybe we shouldn't have lost our way, which we did during Prohibition, of course. That's why we lost touch with our old food ways, our drink ways. The difference between a, um, uh, an experienced bartender and a greenhorn is whether or not they shake the cocktail over the ice. A lot of people think you just put ice in the glass and pour your spirits in your mixer. and No, ice is a primary ingredient. Yeah, it, in, um, there's a bar here. I'm having trouble remembering the name, but I believe they have a six-month ice training program. 
Um, and that's how long it takes to learn how to really use ice well if you're going to hand carve everything. Sure. Wow. Amazing. All right. Let's make a toast because this is and this Cheers. is the um, the Alesmith IPA. Yes, sir. Yes. Indeed. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Well, Christine, um, what do you think? You know, your book covers so many things, and I'm I'm going to read it again. I'm going to read it probably three times over in the next year because I still there's so many things I missed. Um, there's prohibition. Were there any benefits of prohibition? Um, it, it, one thing that's interesting about prohibition is that people are really invested in this story as something that created more problems than it solved. And to some degree, that's true. But if you look at the beginning of Prohibition, people really did drink less for the first half of it. It was very successful at curbing people's, um, you know, overconsumption for a while. So people have gone back and they've looked at actual uh, cirrhosis of the liver cases. And we can see now that people really did drink (coughs) less. Not maybe in New York, where there were some, you know, stunning number of speakeasies. But in rural areas and where people had less money, it really did curb things. Not that I think that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> people drinking less. So the, so the whole thing in Prohibition really was it was affluent people wanted to preserve their way of life and they didn't really want to see their workers drinking. Is that kind of what it came down to? Well, if you, there were people like Ernest Charrington as a British writer who came here and he observed it and he said it was very clear that Prohibition was never meant for rich people, that it was only about um, regulating the way that the lower classes lived their lives. And um, it, it's very clear that uh, also that it's really the anti-saloon league that has the political power. It's not the temperance ladies. You know, these women didn't even have the vote. So to blame it on the WCTU is kind of absurd. It's when the big money came in in the 1890s and started funding the ASL that you started to see things close down. So then you realize it's not even about drinking. It's about drinking in public. And it's about certain classes and ethnic groups drinking in public. And that's what gets people really politically motivated makes that connection with the abortion all the more valid you know where the uh, the rich people always were able to go to the uh, the doctors to find doctors to do the abortions on the side the poor people are the ones who suffered and went in the back alleys right just like the the rich people always had the kennedys bringing the um, the fine spirits across the the Great Lakes from the Seagram's people or whatever, and and the poor people were making bathtub gin and dying. Yeah, there's a story that the real (laughs) McCoy, that term, came from a a reference to Canadian whiskey. That's Mm -hmm. the real McCoy coming across, and McCoy was the name of of a bootlegger who was really famous for bringing good stuff in. Um, And so it it becomes clear that it's really about shutting down that space. And if you think that, if you trace it back to the American Revolution and you see that the revolution happened in a tavern, then you can see why it's politically important to shut down bars because dangerous things can happen there too. You know, that's where things, people get angry and take action. One thing you said was that some of the the taverns before Prohibition had, had educational components like talks about Shakespeare and other things, which you wouldn't expect from the immigrant workers. Right, it was a total cultural center. Yeah, there was a great bar, and I uh, I can't think of the location, but Justice Schwab's place, which was um, in New York, that uh, that was a lending library, too, right? You know, there were so many... It was a real cultural center. Didn't Oscar Wilde come to the United States in the late 19th century and, and, and 
do uh, tours of the saloons in the West and yeah, read he, poetry. He came into the country. He says, "I have nothing to declare about my genius or, or something like that." <laughs> um, <laughs> young man. But it's interesting because yeah. taverns. Um, I read a little bit about it, and they really were. You know, they were the first libraries. They were the first art galleries. They were the first cinemas. They were the first everything. You yeah. Know? It was great. <laughs> Even the first cinemas too. Yeah, well, they, they reckon the whole idea of cinemas came from um, from art. So basically, some artists would draw Montana, a Montana landscape, and people would come to a bar to view it, um, just to see what it was like, you know. And that's where cinema started. Essentially, Hang a sheet on the wall yeah. to the projections. Yeah, that's what's all that's shown. <laughs> so Barry, you're also a student of taverns. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you're Irish, you're a student of taverns, you know. <laughs> so what, uh, what, what was the life? first the first pub or tavern you ever worked in? Well, uh, um, I worked in a pub called the Gravediggers in Glasnevin in Dublin, uh, <laughs> named because it's beside the largest cemetery in Dublin. Um, so, yeah, a great pub, family pub, um, you know, a real dysfunction. Like, in Ireland, I always find a pub is like a large dysfunctional family. Um, you've got your crazy customers, you've got your, you know, you've got your mothers and your fathers, you've got it all, you know. And that's what I like about bars, they actually have all those different characters. And they all wind each other up, and they all argue and get along, and it's great. You know, that's what a tavern's all about. You know. So you like that? I do. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you come to America? Um, uh, by plane. Um, <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah>. sorry. <laughs> um, well, um, I actually was living in Toronto for a year, and then um, I just came here for for Christmas. It was the Christmas two years ago, where it was a blizzard, and just fell in love, you know, with New York. So yeah, I came back. And. You know, you're here in New York, so what happened? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Francis Tavern, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, so I'm in Francis Tavern. See, an Irish company runs the bar in, in Francis Tavern uh, called the Porterhouse. Um, so I was lucky enough to get an opportunity with those guys. Um, and they bring in their own beer. I've, I brought some to this, today, this evening. Um, and uh, it's great, you know. Um, it, it, the microbrew scene in Ireland is, is quite small. You know, you've got your big players and they really control it, you know. Um, so it's growing, uh, and the Porterhouse would have been is is the largest independent kind of microbrewery in Ireland, you know, um, and it's great to see them come over to New York. So let's taste. What did you bring us? Um, well, I, I I'm Irish, so I brought you three different kinds of beer: um, two stouts and one ale. The red ale is is delicious. It's um, what you won't tell us. What's the name of this this brewery? Uh, the Porterhouse. The Porterhouse. The Porterhouse. So the guys, does the Porterhouse own Francis Tavern, or the owners of Porterhouse? What's this whole thing? Well, basically, Francis... Because I'm trying to protect my American heritage. No, no, yeah, go for it, go for it. Um, so Francis Tavern was pretty much saved by an organization called the Sons of the Revolution. Um, so they're all descendants of guys who fought in the Revolution, you know. Um, so they saved the building, um, hired an architect to reconstruct it in its, its original form. And um, this went on like over a hundred years ago, um, and the, the bar came up for lease, and an Irish company, the Porterhouse, uh, offered so to take it up. Just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we've we've only reopened just over a year, year and a half, nearly now. You know, um, after you know an expensive renovation and everything. So, so it's been great. You know, uh, doing very well, um, and it's it's just it's nice for an Irish company to be kind of breeding new life into into the, this uh, revolutionary building. You know. And what's mm-hmm. this beer again? Uh, this is the Porterhouse Red Ale. Um, so it's lovely. It's got some caramel kind of chocolatey notes to it. Um, sorry. Um, so yeah, it's it's what I describe as a session beer. Um, I, I, I have an opinion about the whole drunken Irish thing, you know, uh, because 
we come over to this country and all the beers are so strong. Like, they're all 5%, 7.5%. Like, in Ireland, a beer is 4.2, 4.3, you know. So this is a good beer. It's, it's about that, that strength and you can drink a lot of them and not fall over, which wow. is always nice. Christine, have you been to the renovated Francis Tavern? I have. I, I did an event there last year. I love it there. It's great. What, what do you think about Francis Tavern when you're there? Do, does history run through your head or... Are there any stories that come to your mind? It, absolutely. Ha, you know, you, how can it not? So much happened in that bar. And, um, you know, Washington was gave his farewell address there to the, you know, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating story just in that bar, let alone all of the other bars in America. But that bar itself, could you could fill a whole book, really, with what's happened there. It's fantastic. Well, the, the, the message from what you wrote in your book, I, I love it because... For me, I have a pub in the East Village, Jimmy's number 43, and honestly, we use it more as a meeting place and a community space than anything. Sure. You know, whether we have people coming to talk about, you know, food activism or, you know, uh, farm CSAs or just getting together and having a roundtable lunch, I, I, I love it. You know, it's a place for different people to meet. I've met so many people from different walks of life there. I think that's the key, isn't it? And I think J.R. Moringer in The Tender Bar, he wrote about this, and he talked about how before the bar, everybody's opinions are equal. It doesn't matter. You have a dishwasher, cab driver, university professor, a lawyer. Unless you're talking about something that's your specialty, it's everybody's there. Everybody becomes equal. It's a hugely equalizing force where you get people from all different walks of life. And where else do you get that? There aren't very many places for that anymore. You know, this is a really special place that we need to look after and what about women in bars <laughs> i know you, you finished the book with, with a lot of cool stuff women drank more in bars than we think all all along there was a brief period of time where where um middle class and upper middle class women would not have been welcome in bars and they would not have been drinking in bars it, um but really i mean the history of beer women were the original brewmaster so you realize that this is something that happened basically from about 1850 um, during the Victorian era, era that it became um, improper for middle-class women to go out in public and drink. Even so, there would have been some. Um, and then after Prohibition, of course, there were a lot of men's-only bars, which were open for a while. And um, one of the big characters in my book is Karen DeCrow, who is in Syracuse. She was the president of the National Organization for Women. And she just said very clearly... I recognized it for what it was. It was segre- segregation. And... Um, what it, the problem is that business decisions are not made in the boardroom. That's not when I decide who I'm going to promote or who's going to get promoted. Business decisions also get made in the social space after. So if you don't let women in, then you're, you're contributing to the glass ceiling, you know, that women can't ever break through that barrier. And so that's why she pushed so hard to make that an agenda. Early on in the now's history, you know, it was one of the first things they did. This is the 1960s. Yes, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's let's before we take this break. Let's so in in your book you mentioned the mixed was was only men, and uh, what, there was a law that was passed that allowed women in. What, what happened? Uh, I believe mixed They've said that they were dragged kicking and screaming into um, allowing women into the bar. Uh, that the, it, they did not do so voluntarily. Many places invited people like Gloria Steinem to come into bars to show we've we realize what we've made a mistake and you know we're going to change that but McSorley's was not happy wow cool well, we're gonna I know the woman that was the first woman in McSorley's and we're gonna not talk about her until we come back from our short break on beer sessions radio Thank you. 
You know that gypsy with the gold cap too She's got a pad on 34th and Vine Selling little bottles of love potion number nine I told her that I was a flop with chicks I've been this way since 1956 She looked at my palm and she made a magic sign She said what you need is love potion number nine She bent down and turned around and gave me a wink She said I'm gonna mix it up right here in the sink It smelled like turpentine and looked like India ink I held my nose, I closed my eyes I took a drink Didn't know it was a day or night I started kissing everything in sight But when I kissed the cop at 34th and Vine He broke my little bottle of love potion number nine And everything in sight But when I kissed the cop At 34th and Vine He broke my little bottle of Love potion number nine Love potion number Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We were talking about all kinds of cool things going on in New York right now. Manhattan Cocktail Classic and other things. But it's actually the American Craft Beer Week. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of cool. Check it out at craftbeer.com. Um, we're here in New York. We're trying to do things with, with small beer bars, with, with a little history. Um, and this tavern show is very, very cool. Um, Christine wrote in her book, America Walks Into a Bar. That uh, the first woman who was allowed into McSorley's in 1969 uh, was Barbara Shaw, and I actually know her because Jimmy's Number 43 is on the same block as McSorley's. And uh, the story that she told me was that when they felt they were being forced to allow women into the bar, uh, Barbara had a leather shop next door, and they said we'd rather have a, a, a friend Neighbor. be their first woman <laughs> than someone else. So there's a there's a photo in a newspaper that she still has. She's on a, in a shop on Fourth Street in East Village. And there's two big burly guys on either side of her, and they're all smiling and they're walking into McSorley's with her. Um, <laughs> is that progress? I mean, I've actually never hardly ever go to McSorley's. I mean, why was that such a big deal to get women into into old bars like that? Like, why don't they just open new places where everyone could go? I think it's just symbolic, right? It, it's not necessarily that McSorley's is ne- um, that sort of a power broker place where people are making big decisions. It's an institution. I mean, isn't it? But it's really it's like yeah. the, the smallest little like old school bar. It, it it's not like a twenty one club. It's not River Cafe. You know, it's just a little really great little yeah. old school beer bar. Right. But once you enact the legislation that's a, about discrimination, it has to apply to everybody, right? So. I think that, that, that the McSorley's just wound up being a symbol of everything else that was going on. The real places that they wanted to get into were the, the very you know expensive hotel bars that were where a lot of business decisions were being made. 
How long did it take McSorley's, though, to enact it, to create a ladies' room, though? I mean, because I know for many, many years they still had that one unisex bathroom with the glass door window. I had heard that. I um, I think that lasted for some time, didn't yeah, it? it sure because did. I mean, you could, you could see into the bathroom? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. It, it was like a well, it was like a frosted glass. I mean, it still had to be intimidating. I mean, there was no lock on the door. There were those big ass old porcelain urinals on the wall and all that, you know. So if you're a woman and you had to use the ladies' room, you were at a so it's like that, that movie uh, <laughs> Bridesmaids, right? <laughs> they still have to use the male urinal. Right. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> I don't. Know, I'm a little, a little bit out of my league on this show because I feel like we're really going deep into history. Um. There's a lot of terms that came up in your book that I don't even know, Christine. So let's go through them and let's have let's have the boys join in. There's some terms like saloon, dram shop, tavern, pub, honky tonk. What are these? Well, the the tavern or the ordinary is probably the first name for uh, any kind of bar in America. That really didn't last as long. There was a Puritan ordinary. It switched into a tavern very quickly, um, and that was the standard term that was used. It, that um, was the main thing that you would call a bar until about the 1850s when the saloon starts to take over, and the saloon around that era starts to become one of the more common names for a bar. There's a distinct difference to me between what a tavern looks like and what a saloon looks like. The modern American bar with the long bar that people stand at and the spittoons and the taxidermy, that is really saloon innovation that's happening. Um, And then, of course, the speakeasy is any illegal place along with the blind pig. Um, there are so many roadhouses were often innovated in places where there would be prohibition in one place but not in another. So you, you're going across the border to use a, a roadhouse somewhere. There were a lot of Canadian roadhouses during prohibition after 1927. What's a dram shop? Uh, a dram shop, uh, uh, grog shops and dram shops were really just stores where people would order order drinks across the, the you could just have a drink of rum. I think it's interesting that I did not know that that was an official term dram shop because as a bar owner there's legislation called the dram shop, dram strop, whatever it is, law about uh, suing bar owners when a patron gets into a car accident or mm-hmm. something like that, leaving it's called the dram shop, and and I had no idea where that expression came from, and um, it's been in the news a lot lately because there've been a couple of high-profile situations on Staten Island. That's right. interesting. I yeah. didn't know that. There were um, grog shops in the 1830s in Boston, which were really controversial because that was it wasn't a real proper tavern or bar. It didn't sell food. It was really a grocery where you could go in and you could just have a little bit. At one point, they made a 15-gallon law in Boston mm. that made it illegal to order rum in any quantity other than 15 gallons, which doesn't sound like a temperance it's measure. It's interesting also because uh, we were talking about the prohibition and the repeal before, and, and wasn't there like an incremental thing with the proof of beer? Like they, were, they did mm-hmm. like a near beer. They kept playing with the alcohol content of beer yeah. until finally prohibition was totally repealed. Then you could have like regular beer again. But I know that a, a lot of the breweries on Staten Island survived making malt beverages or something, you know, like sodas. Like I, I know, like in in Puerto Rico, they have like Malta Corona, uh, which is just like a malt beverage that's not alcoholic. I think a lot of them did that, and they promoted it as almost like a health healthy thing to drink. And and then they slowly started to add a little bit of alcohol, became near beer. Uh, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how that happened. What, what is near beer? You said McSorley's stayed open? 
because they had near beer. What is near beer? Yeah, my understanding is that McSorley's claimed to be selling a low alcohol beer, and I, I think it's under fudging it. Right. It's I think the limit is under three percent, but I'm not positive. And um, and they said that they were, but Joseph Mitchell said it's it was pretty near to beer. So Ooh. it you know it may, it may well have been beer, but they were so respected. I think they had such a legacy there that they were probably allowed to pass through prohibition. So when you research a book, I mean, do, do you start with texts? I mean, this is a, this is a, a hugely dense book. America walks into a bar. I'm going to keep saying it because I love it. <laughs> but, I mean, most of us were bar owners, we're, we're brewery people. I mean, I, I don't know. Tell us, tell us more about how you made this book. Well, we're there's, fascinated. There's so much in the old documents that are now coming online. In the progress, um, in the in the process of writing this book, so much stuff became available online as everybody is digitizing stuff. But if you do random sort of searches through a Harper's magazine and you look for saloon, you'd be amazed at how many references that you wind up coming up with. It's literally everywhere. You could write ten books and fill them um, all about the same sort of theme because people were living their lives in bars until Prohibition, and it was a really important part of the culture. So whenever you have stories about the revolution, politics, the Whiskey Rebellion, I mean, and it goes on and on and on, somewhere in there they'll, there's a mention of a saloon or a tavern. People voted in saloons, is right? It, isn't it interesting, though, that, that uh, in, like in Ireland, um, it's still a, a family center, you go on um, a Friday or a Saturday night in a small town in Ireland, and and the the, the pub, you'll find all the generations that are hanging out there, uh, and there was never like this sense of shame <laughs> about no. it that that there is here in the United States, like like oh that's where the men go to get drunk or whatever. It really was more of a family center, and mm. it's maintained that. Well, we kind of hinted at it earlier, and I, and I think what what distinguishes us the taverns that we work at um, is that it, they're owner operated you know and that's a huge thing yes and that's where the taverns are getting a bit lost now with you know multinationals or whatever opening you know a chain of bars the bars I've always worked in have had the owners there on, on site you know and they care sure. yeah. and they create this family atmosphere and you know that's what a tavern should be really you know? mm-hmm. well another thing from your book Christine was that you said that before Prohibition, many bars were, were tied to breweries, which is kind of what had happened in, in UK. And, and, and after Prohibition, they broke that system. And some people have said, sure. when I asked before what was a benefit of Prohibition, some people said that it broke the, the brewery-tied system. Sure. And, and it really enabled uh, operators to have a little more independence. Yeah, it, that, that is a good benefit that I hadn't thought of um, when there were too many saloons, there was too much drinking in America. No question. I really think that there there was a lot of whiskey being consumed, um, not necessarily right before Prohibition, but in the middle of the century. That's where a lot of this comes from in the middle middle of the nineteenth century. Um, but there were also too many saloons right around the turn of the century, right around 1900, because it was so easy. Anyone could get a saloon. Um, you just get a brewery to back you. And as a result, there were a lot of dirty tricks going on in bars in order to keep your clientele. The competition was so fierce that everybody was working to um, make to give a value added. So prostitution, gambling, all of these different um, other vices become associated with the saloon for real reasons, because everyone's trying to make a buck and there's too many guys on the block. Well, I, I, I do know that... Um, I, 
I didn't know whether or not it was a German tradition or not. I own a German restaurant. But uh, Staten Island, in particular, in the 19th century, was very German, and a lot of the German immigrants created these great breweries on Staten Island. There was the R&H Brewery, the Bechtel Brewery, the Bachmann Brewery, the Eckstein Brewery, and each one of the uh, breweries, of course, had their had their um, their affiliations with the different uh, taverns. My my uh, place, for instance, I found out only by, with a magnifying glass and some old photographs, I realized that Kilmeyer's was an Eckstein house, which was Monroe Eckstein's Four Corners Brewery on Manor Road. No longer there, of course. And that very much is like that German tradition of the, I don't know whether it's in some exclusivity or something like that, that each brewer has with the different taverns. Of course, that doesn't exist anymore. Now you go into the average bar and they have a list of 20, 30, 40 beers. But that's... Uh, but, seems, yeah. yeah, they call that the brew, the, the brewery tide system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, I never even knew about that until recently. But I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, as a pub and tavern owner, I will say this. What do I love about taverns? I love that it's it's... There's a lot of independence. We love places that are small, independently owned. We love places that are owner-operated. We love places that can care about a specific thing, whether it's cocktails or really good beer, and they can they can express you know their interest in that and support the up and coming you know small breweries and small spirits makers um, that that we all try to do. And that's why there's a thing called the Good Brazil in New York. We're trying to uh, you know encourage that. You know you can go and and have a, you know a lot of corporate partners and money and open you know you did clubs for a while and now you're into craft beer bar we're, we're really not about that we're trying to recognize people that have been doing it for a while and uh, like you at Kilmars and Francis Tavern stepping in you know and uh, we're inspired by your book Christine so thank you so much thank you for thank coming you on. yes um, again tonight's podcast is brought to you by greatbrewers.com at greatbrewers.com it's all about the beer uh, good beer seal bars there's some events coming up tomorrow night founders night at the double windsor in brooklyn if you haven't been to the double windsor it's a pretty cool bar with a lot of good craft beer uh, next tuesday jimmy's number 43 it's the bach night uh, we do every tuesday a 10 dollar tasty you can try six different beers some of the best in the world that you've never tried and every week they're different and the new york brewers guild it's going to be taking over the New York Craft Beer Week. It's it's all the breweries in New York City. They have a bash going on May 22nd. Check out uh, brooklynbrewery.com to get a little more info. So I'd like to thank our sponsors again. Greatbrewers.com have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Again, to our friends, Good Beer Seal. You can find Beer Sessions Radio on our Facebook fan page, Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, one thing before we sign off, Christine, anything else you want to say? About your book or what your plans are or where you're going to be? Um, n- no, I don't really have much more. But, you know, support your local bar. Drink lots. That's my message, I think. And Ken, <laughs> what's going on in Staten Island? Well, we got our beer garden is open for the summer season. We have a lot of live music. We have a lot of great German, European, Belgian, and craft beers being poured every day. All right. And Barry, what's your favorite porterhouse beer right now? Uh, I really do like the red. Uh, it's very drinkable, and especially coming into the summer, it's not too heavy. You know, it's it's nice. You know, I like it too. Cheers to Irish craft beer. Yeah. All right, cheers. cheers. So, uh, thanks to Christine, Barry, and Ken for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers Jack Insley and Brie O'Connor. Guest coordinator Brett Thompson. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Some of my songs I have casually mentioned the fact that I like to drink beer. This little song is more to the point 
Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a Thanks for Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Should help.